Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read through this chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Our connection with this uh, scripture reading, we also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 30. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who should come to the, t the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people 
by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is often referred to as the Holy Supper of our Lord, uh, making clear that uh, the Lord's Supper is not a common meal, but a spiritual partaking of Christ in the worship of the church, along with the body of uh, the church. And uh, the holiness of the Lord's Supper then must be observed and uh, respected and even even guarded and, and protected as sacred. And Lord's Day 30 is actually about, about guarding that sacredness, about guarding it on a doctrinal level, what is taught and understood about it, guarding it also on a personal level, in terms of our individual participation in the supper, and also guarding it on the church level. In other words, we might say that uh, this uh, Lord's Day exhorts us and teaches us to keep the meaning of the Lord's Supper clear and to keep our own participation in it uh, sincere and also to keep the communal or church observation of it pure. We are to celebrate this sacrament, uh, but not in superstition, not simply as a, a matter of uh, form or, or custom, uh, but in faith. And uh, to observe it in faith is not simply to uh, participate it with some vague notion that somehow it is beneficial to us, but we are to observe it with a true faith and a sincere faith. And that involves understanding understanding its meaning, and that involves the exercise of faith, even in participating in the, the supper, that our faith is active as we trust in this Savior on whom we feed at this table, and a faith likewise that becomes evident in uh, holy living. And basically this Lord's Day uh, deals with those those three aspects of uh of uh, respecting the holiness of the supper and participating it in in true faith with these characteristics. Christ calls us to come to his table faithfully in faith. And that's a gracious and a loving call. In, in, in fact, we might say that uh, uh, one of the sweetest words in the scriptures is the word come. And how often... We hear the summons of our God to come, to come to Him, to come without money and without price, to come to feed upon uh, these spiritual riches that God prepares for us in His Son, to come to Him in our thirst, to come to Him in our need, to come to Him in our guilt as to a gracious and mighty and faithful Savior. And so we are called by our Lord to come also to feed upon him as believers at his table. To come by faith. To come by faith in the once for all sacrifice of Christ for us. Now question and answer 80, it describes and then it basically answers a number of errors uh, involved in the Roman Catholic teaching of the Mass. And it's often been observed that... Uh, uh, this Lord's Day and question and answer 80 in particular are the most, uh, it's the most negative Lord's Day. 
And uh, it uses the strongest language. And sometimes that has provoked a response. Is that really necessary? Uh, isn't this rather provocative, this language? Isn't it judgmental? Should such language as accursed or condemnable idolatry be used in our confession of faith with respect to a particular denomination of, uh, of people who profess to be Christians? Well, we must, uh, we must realize that uh, this strong language is not mean-spirited, nor is it unloving, but it is passionate. It's passionate for the honor of Christ. It's passionate for the true holiness of the supper. And in that sense, it is also passionate for the salvation and well-being of other sinners like ourselves who are so severely crippled and damaged by false teaching. False teaching that that is a real hindrance to their assurance of their salvation. A kind of teaching that that, that leaves them dependent upon the church in a slavish way of reliance upon the priesthood and their special activities on their behalf. And so passion and zeal is not the opposite of love. Where there is love for God, there will be passion and zeal for His truth. And there will be passion and zeal for uh, the well-being and the comfort of other Christians. We ought to be passionate about such things. And so this Lord's Day is not simply a polemic attack against uh, the Roman Catholic Church. This is a Lord's Day that proclaims the riches of the Gospel for the comfort of God's people and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so we have to look at these errors and evaluate them. What are they? Well, most basic, and we've already uh, considered this briefly before, the Roman Catholic uh, Church teaches that in the Mass, Christ is bodily present. He is uh, bodily present under the form of bread and wine. And this is the basic error, you might say. It, it is the, ba uh, the error that leads to other errors. And uh, we considered uh, last time that this this uh, this idea that Christ is literally physically bodily present in the form of bread and wine, as if his bodily form uh, changes shape and, uh, in a sense, takes on different characteristics and properties, although its substance remains somehow in bread and wine, this error involves the failure to understand the sacramental language that the Scripture often uses describing uh, the signs that God has appointed in sacraments in a way that identifies them with the things signified, and thus it, it fails to appreciate the figurative language of Jesus when he said of the bread, this is my body. It represents his body and is to be used in that way by his appointment. But it also then involves other consequences that kind of flow out of this error. It involves the confusion of the human and divine natures of Christ. That's why our catechism emphasizes that Christ is bodily in heaven now. 
Christ retains a true human body. Yes, it's in a glorified condition, but it remains a body which is limited in space. His body is not somehow uh, infinite without dimensions. No, His body is now in heaven and there it will remain until He comes again bodily. His body does not take on divine properties such that He can bodily be present everywhere. Everywhere the Mass is observed, there Jesus is bodily present. That is to confuse the human nature and the divine nature of Christ. Yes, they are united in one person, but they retain their distinct properties. They're not somehow mixed and jumbled and confused together. They are united in one person. But he remains true man with true human characteristics while at the same time he is true God. But the teaching of the Mass confuses the human and the divine nature of Christ. And then closely related to that is the practice of showing divine reverence for bread and wine. Because the Mass teaches that Christ is then to be worshipped under this form of bread and wine. We tried to make abundantly clear last week that when we call the bread and wine holy, we don't mean that they've somehow taken on divine properties or are somehow to be identified with the body of Jesus literally, physically. If that were the case, yes, they ought to be worshipped. That's why good Roman Catholics, they genuflect when they come into the, uh, the sanctuary. They bow to the host. The bread and wine is to be worshipped. And the catechism rightly identifies that as condemnable idolatry. As if the glory of Christ might be transubstantiated into bread and wine that is digested or rots as it's placed in a box because it cannot be used in any other way. It involves these errors. And, and, and perhaps most significantly, again, it's, it flows out of this confusion of uh, the body of Christ with the elements, but uh, related to that is the Roman Catholic teaching that Christ is still offered daily in the Mass. The Mass has been defined as a kind of unbloody sacrifice. According to the Roman Catholic teaching, this is necessary for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. The Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. In other words, our salvation really depends upon this ongoing activity of the priests on our behalf. What greater dishonor could be done to our Lord Jesus? And what an outright denial of the clearest, most emphatic declarations of Scripture concerning the once-for-all, all-sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Catechism cites a number of passages from the book of, of Hebrews that make this so abundantly clear. In Hebrews uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 27 in contrast to those old covenant sacrifices that could never take away sin, and therefore they were repeated again and again, Christ does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for His own sins and then for the people's. For this He did 
once for all when he offered up himself. In chapter 9, uh, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he, that is Christ, entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Later on in this same ninth chapter of, of, uh, of Hebrews, in verses 25 and 26, uh, in contrast, again, to the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 10, verse 10. By God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This man, Christ, verse 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 18, now where there is remission of, the, of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. You know that the letter to the Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians that were tempted to revert back to the old covenant system and its glory, its ongoing sacrifices. And the writer to the Hebrews is demonstrating that all those sacrifices, they couldn't take away sin. They all pointed to Christ and they all pointed to what He would accomplish once and forever by that one sacrifice of Himself. But you know, when you read that, it's almost as if this could be written directly with the Roman Catholic Mass in mind. With its idea of the repetition the reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass as necessary for the forgiveness of sins. No, there is no repetition of that death. There is no reenactment of it. There is no offering that we make or anyone else makes for us in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a, a supper of remembrance and partaking in that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we can take for granted just how foundational that is to our assurance of salvation. You see, that, that assurance was not made clear in the Old Covenant. Because in the repeated sacrifices, there was always a reminder of sin and the need for sacrifice to deal with it. And there is a direct correlation between the biblical testimony of the sufficiency of Christ's death once for all to justify sinners and the assurance that we have that our sins are forgiven. But sadly, that is lacking in the teaching of the Mass, and it's lacking, by and large, in the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, where they do not teach assurance. And they really rebelled and revolted against the reformational teaching of the assurance of salvation, because they feared that that would let people off the hook, and it would make them less dependent upon the church and its clergy, and its ministry on the behalf of the laity. No, we have one priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have priests. Priests offer sacrifices. There are no more sacrifices to be offered. We're all priests 
in the sense that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. But we don't need priests to offer sacrifices for us. That's a denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we maintain it for his honor and for our comfort in the knowledge that his blood, once shed for all, cleanses us from all sins. And we come to the Lord's table by faith in that once-for-all sacrifice of Christ for us. Secondly, we come by faith experienced in our inner life. You know that the Heidelberg Catechism defines faith in terms of knowledge. There must be a knowledge of the gospel. But it also involves trust. That involves the activity of the soul. And we come to the Lord's table, and we should come with a true knowledge and understanding of the Lord's table. But we come to the Lord's table also entrusting ourselves afresh upon Christ's finished work and his grace towards us. We rely upon him. And that's the activity of the soul. And our catechism defi- de- describes those, those components of, of that, a- that activity where it asks who should come to the Lord's table. And then it, uh, it explains that in uh, ways that describe basically what it means to be a Christian. Who should come to the Lord's table? Even that language is worth uh, observing, right? Because uh, in the introduction to the Heidelberg's treatment of the Lord's Supper, we read that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of his body and drink of his blood at, at the Lord's table. All believers they're to come. And believers are those who have true faith. And answer 81 is basically a description of such true faith. It's a description of a believer. In fact, you might even, you might even see how it compares, uh, in its answer and corresponds, uh, to the first Lord's Day. You remember the first question and answer. What is only your only comfort in life and in death? And it describes that comfort. And then it says, what three things must you know in order to live and die in this comfort? And those three things correspond very closely to those three uh, characteristics of faith described in answer 81. We are to have a knowledge of our sin. And yet we're to have a knowledge of the salvation, our deliverance from sin. We're to trust in this Savior. And we also need to know how we are to live lives of gratitude. And that basically corresponds to this description of, uh, of those who should come to the Lord's table. Everyone who is a true Christian, everyone who is properly a mature living member of the church should come to this table. The question is not who may come. It's not a special class of Christians who have uh, met some vigorous standard that somehow makes them worthy. No, the, the worthiness that the Scripture speaks of in terms of that language is not any worthiness that we find in ourselves, but it emphasizes the need of true faith in Christ with a knowledge of our spiritual need and a reliance upon His grace with a sincere desire indeed for that grace of forgiveness and renewal and help. In fact, notice how answer 81 really describes the inner life of faith. You can see that in some of the key words that are used. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin. That describes a, an attitude 
feelings, thoughts that they have about themselves. There's a kind of self-criticism involved here. A kind of self-judgment, a kind of regret, a kind of sorrow for sin. It's the opposite of pride, isn't it? It's the opposite of, of uh, self-righteousness. It's the opposite of denying our sin or minimizing our sin. It's the opposite of having a high opinion of ourselves. No, we are displeased with ourselves because of our sin before God. And that's an inward attitude. And the same thing is too of trust. Trust, that's a reliance on, on the mercy of God in Christ. Uh, despite our failure, we turn from ourselves. And in view of our failure and sin, we trust on God's provision. And then thirdly, desire. That's also an inward thing, isn't it? Uh, the Christian life really consists much uh, of, uh, in terms of desires. Seeking. You know, Christian faith is a seeking faith. Seeking more of God's grace. Spiritual hunger for growth and faith and obedience. It's like a, a Godward movement of our souls. We desire more and more to be strengthened in our faith and to, and to lead a better life. Now those things are, those things are invisible, you might say. It describes the inner life. Now that doesn't mean that they don't become evident. They, they do become evident in our, our, uh, our actions, our, our prayers, our worship, our conduct and behavior. But ultimately, these things are beyond the judgment of others. They're matters of the heart, aren't they? And they're matters of experience. They can't be scrutinized uh, by others. In fact, sometimes we find it hard even to evaluate ourselves on some of these things. But a true believer cares about them. A true believer wants to examine himself with respect to these inner characteristics of faith. He wants to prove them as genuine. He's not just going through the motions. He's not just putting on an act. He's not just outwardly conforming to some expectations and coming to church and sitting nice and trying to be decent enough to avoid uh, problems in his daily life. No, it's a matter of the heart. But they are important. Come. Come believing in this once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And come with the genuineness of faith that involves uh, the experience of our inner lives. And then thirdly, come by faith, evident in our profession and conduct. We read Psalm 50. It's a psalm that really proclaims the gospel, you might say, in verse 15, where the Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. You might say that verse, in a sense, contains in itself uh, sin, salvation, and service. That day of trouble can be the realization of our spiritual need, but there is a promise of deliverance to those who call upon Him. And then the result, well, we glorify God. We, we praise Him for His grace. The psalm also brings a very solemn charge against abusing God's covenant mercies. It's a psalm that's really addressed to the covenant people of God. That's clear. Even in the description of the wicked, these are not the Gentile wicked, those that are far from the ordinances of God, 
But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? See, and you hate instruction. You cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your mother's son. These people are described in terms of their overt violation of God's commandments, a way of living that is diametrically opposed to what it means to seek to honor and serve God and to love your neighbor. Some of these sins are spelled out, gross sins, you might say. Theft and adultery, being partakers with adulterers, condoning or participating in their sins. You know that something very much like that is what was going on in Corinth. There was this situation that Paul describes in which a man had a relationship with his father's wife. That's the language it used. It's not his biological mother. A woman that his father perhaps married again. Perhaps perhaps uh, uh, they themselves had become alienated. Perhaps he married a much younger woman. There might be all kinds of circumstances that might make many people today say, oh yeah, I can understand that. But it's recognized as a gross, incestuous kind of sin and a violation of, of God's norms that had to be dealt with in the church. But the church was puffed up, perhaps in the name of grace. All our sins are forgiven. Even those sins, they were condoning it. They weren't addressing it. Unrepentant sin disqualifies people from the Lord's table. That's why in a form for preparation, there is that list of gross sins. And it says those who practice such uh, things should abstain from the table. Lest their condemnation be made the heavier. They're violating the holiness of the table. I think that they can live in the practice of sin and yet come to the Lord's table without repentance. Unrepentant sin disqualifies people from the table. Why? Because they're not good enough? Now, that's how some people would frame the issue. Oh, they're not good enough. That's a wrong way of thinking. No, the reason is the practice of sin puts a great big fat question mark on the genuineness of one's Christian profession. Believers fall into sin. Yes, we commit sin, but we fight against sin. We don't indulge in it without repentance and practice gross sin as if we can be Christians and live however we please. The problem is not that we're not good enough. The problem is that there's a big question about whether we have a genuine faith. In fact, even Christians that are living in sin, and sometimes that happens, true believers can fall into sin and continue in sin for a time. And if they don't have assurance of salvation in that condition, good, good. They ought not to have assurance until they repent. The answer indeed is not to say, well, no, then I'm disqualified. I'm lost. I'm damned. No, the answer, the solution is repent. Turn away from sin. Come to Christ afresh in your need for forgiveness, yes, and for need for grace to fight against this enemy that wars against your soul. Undisciplined sin, in fact, disqualifies congregations from acceptance at the table. And that means that if people show that they are ungodly or unbelieving and nothing is done about it in the church, well, then the whole congregation is endangered by that. That's what Paul means when he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven there being a type of sin. And the nature of leaven, like yeast, is that it spreads. 
It grows. And the danger is that open sin tolerated in the congregation without addressing it is likely to infect others. And it's likely to break covenant and provoke the wrath of God. Provoke His discipline of the church. That was actually what was going on in, in Corinth, as we learned from the 11th uh, chapter, where, yes, the Lord's Supper was being abused and God was showing His uh, corrective judgment in the congregation. In fact, it says in verse 30, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, does that mean that people are sleeping in church? Or they're sleeping at home instead of coming to church? No, it means that they died. God is disciplining disciplining an unfaithful church by visiting sickness and death upon them. Why? So that they might judge themselves. That they might be displeased with themselves. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we might not be condemned with the world. Rather, repent. And the answer then to this problem going on there in Corinth and failing to address this sin among them was to deal with that sin, to deal with it openly. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. If there's any question about what that means, uh, verse 13 makes it clear. It says, therefore, put away from yourselves that evil person. The description of excommunication, this, this, uh, Lord's Day basically introduces the keys of the kingdom, which are preaching the gospel and the exercise of church discipline. It doesn't elaborate it, but that's what's referred to here. If faith is contradicted by our lives, we need correction. We need God's tough love. We need that. We want that, don't we? You know, when we make profession of faith, we, we also promise to submit to the government of the church. And in case we are delinquent, to submit to its admonition and discipline. That's what we want. We want to be corrected. Oh Lord, correct me, but with discretion in mercy so that I'm not consumed. That was Jeremiah's prayer. He wanted to be set right if he was wrong. Sometimes we need God's tough love individually. Sometimes that tough love has to be uh, exercised among God's people for the sake of guarding the purity of the supper, for the sake of protecting the holiness of the church and the salvation of its members. And that's an act of love. Calling for discipline here in, Rome, or in uh, Corinthians chapter 5, Paul appeals to God's saving love. In verse 7, just after uh, uh, he had said, purge out the old leaven, he says, that you may be a new love. And that refers to uh, the restoration and renewal of the church. And then he says, since you truly are unleavened, and then the reason that he gives, for indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He's appealing to gospel motivation. Christ was sacrificed for our sins. How can we indulge in sin or ignore sin? It is so contrary to what our Lord has done for us in giving Himself to deal with sin. You see, in celebrating the Passover, all leaven 
had to remove, be removed from the houses of Israel. And uh, that's because leaven serves as a kind of type of sin, something that spreads. That's the way it's used in this passage here before us. But Christ is the true Passover lamb who deals with sin by the sacrifice of himself, bringing forgiveness and bringing out a renewal and sanctification of God's people. And you see, Paul is using this gospel argument because he knows that in Christ we find the supreme motivation and power to remove sin from our lives. In fact, Christ has already cleansed us from sin in a decisive way by a true conversion to him, by our calling to him by grace. In fact, that's the significance also of this little statement there in the middle of verse 7 where Paul says, since you truly are unleavened, in other words, you, you truly already have been sanctified, set apart, made God's holy people. That's how they're addressed. You go back to the first chapter. How are the Corinthians addressed? To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ. Well, that's not describing people that are perfect and sinless, but it's describing people that have already been effectively called by grace, set apart, renewed spiritually by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're reminded of that so that they might live consistently with it, that they might practice it, that they might live in the light of it. That's what Paul is saying there in, in verse uh in verse 8, where he says, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us keep the feast, or let us keep the festival. Well, what festival is that? He's just been talking about the Passover. But the Passover is over. He's not referring to the Passover. In fact, he appears to be using that Passover celebration in a figurative way. And that's, that's involved in his reference to leaven, because after the Passover feast, there was the week, the weekly feast of unleavened bread, in which Israel was to eat unleavened bread only for seven days. And Paul here refers to those observations, that seven days as prefiguring the entire life of Christians. And so this feast is not one particular celebratory feast, even the Lord's Supper, but it's a call to live out that grace of our sanctification in Christ as those who are purged and purified from sin by his sacrifice for us. In other words, live every day in sincerity and truth. Live every day, not in malice, not in envy. That's not simply something you have to be concerned about before you come to the Lord's Supper. It's like, oh, I've got to be reconciled to my brother because the Lord's Supper is coming up. Well, I've got three weeks yet to hate him and you know hold a grudge against him. Of course not. This is a description of the lives of God's people who are to live in sincerity and truth. Live as always being ready to come uh, to the Lord's table. By faith. Faith in the one sacrifice of Christ. Faith experienced personally 
and faith evident also then by your profession and by your conduct. Amen.